wait, aren't the violent supposed to be subjected to violence? I mean, shouldn't the punishment match the crime? It hasn't yet in Canto 13 of Inferno. It will now. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk, passage by passage, you know that drill, through Dante's masterwork comedy. We're in Canto 13 of Inferno. We're in the seventh circle of hell amongst the violent. We're in the second ring of that circle. We are amongst those who have done violence to themselves and now others who have done violence against their own personal property. More importantly, we have reached the point in which the violent will be subjected, yes, to violence. So the punishment will fit the crime. So let's get to it. This is Canto 13, lines 109 through 126 of Inferno. This is my English language translation, which you can find on my website, walkingwithdante.com or markscarbro.com, not scarborough, but scarbro.com, or get yourself a great translation. Something, let's say, by Hollander or something by Lombardo. A great translation that you can put your weight right down on with the facing page Florentine in English. That would be the best. In any case, this is my English language translation of lines 109 through 126 of Canto 13. We kept our focus on the branch, believing it might wish to tell us more when we are alarmed by an uproar similar to the sound that comes when someone at his post hears a boar and the hunter, the sound of the beast crashing through the underbrush. Lo and behold, two came from our left, bare naked and scratched up, fleeing with all their might so that they broke every branch through the thicket. The one in front, come on, come right now, death. And the other, who seemed slower, cried, Lana, you didn't move your legs that fast at the jaunting tournament near Topo. And perhaps because he was gasping for breath, he turned himself and a bush into one clump. The wood behind him was thick with black bitches ravenous and running at full speed like greyhounds just let off their leashes. Into the one who had squatted down, they sank their teeth and tore him limb from limb. Then they carried away all those hideous body parts. We have finished Pierre de la Vagne, and suddenly we are interrupted by a hunting party, or at least the dogs of a hunting party, chasing down two who try to hide in the bushes of the suicides and don't make it. This is a complicated passage, too. Not quite as bad as Pierre de la Vagne. There's very few things in Inferno as naughty as Pierre de la Vagne. But let's get to it and see what happens here. The passage starts, we kept our focus on the branch believing. And at this point, surely I do not have to say one more word about believing, do I? Surely I don't have to say anything about the believing in this canto and the thematics of belief and trust and faith, but I'm going to have to because, wow, this passage will turn on it. So just show you the words there. It's coming on more in a minute, but we're going to leave it alone and pass on into the passage. This bit, 109-126, is often seen as an inset passage. You know, like, this is a separate scene that is inserted into the canto, but I'm going to 
don't think so. Lots of commentators see it as an inset, but it seems to me it's tied right back to what came before. It seems like this is an ongoing problem. So they're staring at the branch. They think Pierre de la Vigne may have more to say. Then they're disturbed by this uproar, similar to the sort that comes whenever someone at his post hears a boar and the hunter, the sound of the beast crashing through the underbrush. Suddenly, what had been a rather serene scene of pure rhetoric becomes unadulterated chaos. Lo and behold, two came from our left, bare naked and scratched up. And you should know right here, you should just think, wait, where did we just come from? Pierre de la Vigne just said, we're going to go back up up above and we're going to retrieve our bodies but we're not going to be clothed in them like everybody else we're going to hang our bodies in the resurrection off these bushes that we are these are unclothed so there's another tie back to what just came before they're naked bare naked they're all scratched up they're fleeing with all their might so they broke every branch in the thicket who are these two coming through They've been identified in the commentary, and we can probably pin them down. They, they, One gets named in this passage, Delano, and in the passage in the next episode of this podcast, the other one gets <laughs> misnamed, but still, there's probably a way to pin it down. So here's the thought on these two. They're coming through, and the faster one moving in the front is probably probably Arcolano Maconi of Siena. There's a, there's a story about him. I'll tell you the story in a minute, but he's the one probably running faster who says, come, come right now, death. And then the other one who seems slower says, Lano, Arcolano, his nickname, Lano. You didn't move your legs this fast at the jousting tournament at Topo. That is probably Giacomo della Capella di Sant'Andrea. It will see the name in the next episode, in the next passage, and that's probably who these are. The commentary has certainly always settled on these two. I should tell you that Lano, Arcolano Marconi, was part of what at least Boccaccio and others called the Spinthrift Brigade. The Spinthrift Brigade were a group of extraordinarily wealthy men, we should call them trust fund babies, who took great delight in squandering their own property and their own money. It's said that Lano Arcolano, this first one, the faster one of the two, even took great delight in burning down his own palaces, you know, building a great, beautiful place and then burning it to the ground for the sheer joy of it. So we're talking a kind of wasting of personal wealth far beyond the norm. But, uh, well, shall we say, suicidal wasting of personal wealth. I don't even know if we have people like this in our day. It said in some of the commentary that this was a common vice amongst very well-placed young men in the, the 12, 1300s, especially in central Italy. This just desire to not squander, not drink away their, their goods, but literally to set them on fire and rejoice over the fire, to absolutely destroy everything they have, not to eat it down, you know, spend it on drink, but to take delight in the actual destruction of their own physical property, to burn their own vineyards, to destroy their own farms, to salt the land on their own farms. It's at least said that this was a common vice, common, I don't know how common it could be, but a vice practiced by people in the spendthrift 
Brigade in the 12 and 1300s in Central Italy. I mean, it seems insane to me. And I don't even know that we could have people like this these days. We certainly have people who drink down their money. We certainly have people who, uh, for one reason or another, lose their money through squandering it. But it's, it's hard for me to even point to a modern example of somebody who would take delight, pleasure in destroying all of their own property. I'm sure it exists. I'm sure that there are people like this. The question really here, and we should say this when we stop here with Lano and Giacomo, we should say the big question is how are these two different from the prodigal in Circle 5? Remember, we met the avaricious and the prodigal, and the avaricious and the prodigal were rolling those big boulders and they were screaming at each other, you know, why do you hold and why do you throw out? And of course, the squanderers were the ones who threw out and they were screaming back and forth as they rolled these boulders around the circle. It seems as if this is a more violent form of prodigality. This isn't just, oh, spending a lot of money on your church vestments. Those were all clerics, if you remember. It's not just spending a lot of money on your, on your wine cellar. This seems a kind of prodigality that is actually connected to violence in some way. Um, how do I say this? Spending too much versus actually taking pleasure in destroying one's own property. It's still funky. And you should still know that commentators left and right, and me too, you can hear it in my voice, bark their shins on this passage. Because how are these guys not up with the avaricious role in those boulders? What's the difference? We can posit it's a more violent difference. We can posit it because of what happens in the scene as they get torn limb from limb, that this is much more violent. And yet at the same time, we still are left. There's still this nagging question. We didn't really answer it. How are they not up with the squanderers up there? It may be a little bit of a problem in Dante's poetics, maybe a little problem in his thematics, the way he's trying to develop violence as both violence against humans and against personal property. And so he's finding a bit of overlap with previous cantos. It may be a little fault in thematics, or you might feel it's completely okay to say, okay, there's there's a incontinent kind of squandering, and then there's a violent kind of squandering. Maybe, and certainly that's where most people land, although it always seems to me as if I can feel my shin hurting as I barked it on the edge of the text. What I really want to focus on in this passage are three what moments in which I, as a reader, go, what? So here come these two. They're running through the bush and they're bare naked and they're scratched up. That's a little problematic. How is a shade scratched up? But I'm going to give it to it. Fleeing with all their might so they broke every branch through the thicket. Okay, fine. I still have a problem with how do they break? How does a shade break the thicket? I understand how Dante the Pilgrim reached out and snapped off a limb of Pierre de la Vigne. But how does a dead shade do that? How does it break those branches? Doesn't it just pass through them? little problematic, but not as problematic as the next line. The one in front is running faster and says, come, come right now, death. What? Wait, aren't they dead? How can they wish for death? They know they're dead. The dead always know they're dead. Nobody in the inferno is clueless about their death. So what are they wanting to be dead? They're wishing their own death? I realize that that's a suicidal gesture to wish my own death, but how can a shade say, come death, come get me death? That's my first what. It goes on. 
The second shade cries out, Lano, you didn't move your legs this fast at the jousting tournament near Topo. And perhaps because he was gasping for breath. What? Wait, what? What? How do shades gasp for breath? Why do shades need to breathe? How how could they get exhausted running? I understand in Pierre de Levagne when the stem gets snapped and the air from the stem and the blood spurt out that that becomes the voice. I, I get all that. But wait, how can shades get out of breath? What? How? What? Right? I got one more. He turned himself into a bush. He per- turned himself in the bush into one clump. That's that's quite literally the Florentine. What it means is this guy's running and he's a little bit out of breath. And so he crouches down under one of these bushes and tries to hide under it as if he's one with it, you know, trying to look like the bush. He's, he's hiding. So the wood is thick. Here come all these black bitches, these, these female dogs, ravenous, running at full speed, like greyhounds off their, their leashes. They're tearing through, tearing these bushes up right and left. Everything, just a scene of chaos. Into the one who had squatted down in that bush, they sank their teeth and tore him limb from limb. They carried away all those hideous body parts. What? What body parts? What body parts do these guys have? Who? What? They don't have a body. What? What do you mean they tore them limb from limb? How does that work? How would these dogs tear them when? And who are these dogs? Are they spirits? Are they physical? What? How are they gasping for breath? What? How are they wishing for death? What? What is going on here? I got two answers. And you can choose between them. (laughs) You can choose for yourself what the answer is here. One, first answer. Dante, the poet, has lost his mind. And I'm not being crass about this. It could be that Dante, the poet, has lost his way. That he needs a scene to shore up his notion of violence against one's own possessions. He also needs a scene which shows that the violent are subjected to some sort of violence. After all, those who are violent against their neighbors are boiling in blood. You know, there's violence being done to them. He needs some kind of violence to happen here. Tearing up these bushes by these guys running through and these dogs running through certainly brings the violence onto the violent. And he needs a dramatic scene of equal weight to match that surreal dialogue with Pierre de la Vigne. In all of that weight from the passage, the poet has momentarily lost his way. And instead of describing a scene in hell, he's describing a scene almost out of this world, a world in which hunters and people running through the bushes and dogs tearing them up. And it's a terrible nightmarish scene in this world, but it just can't really take place in hell. And the damned can't wish for death. Basically, the poet lost his way and got wrapped up in needing things for this canto. And so it fell off the rails. Okay, here's the second answer. The poet is knowingly stretching credulity. Remember I told you this entire canto is about potentially literary suicide as you put down Virgil, as you take on Ovid, as we reach these points where interpretation is nothing but faith statements. All of this is stretching and stretching credulity. And I told you that there may be a way that this canto pushes its luck and pushes it as far as it can go. And if the poet knows what he's doing, if this is not 
a moment in which he has lost his way, then in fact, this is a moment that stretches all credulity. I've got too many questions. I've got too many questions about how shades need to gasp for air. I've got how can they be pulled apart by their body parts? What happens to these body parts? Okay, the dogs pull them apart. Great, limb from limb. This happens. It's horrific. It's violent. What happens? Does this body reassemble? Because this can't be the end of them. Does this body then go away and the dogs drag it off somewhere and then somehow it reassembles and then the whole chase scene reconvenes again? Doesn't say that. I have so many questions because I feel that the entire canto is all about putting your trust in what you read. And the poet, I believe, is self-consciously and consciously pushing the limits of my credulity. And while you can see that my weight comes down on the second of my two answers from this passage, I'm waffling. Because the minute I kind of settle into it and scrunch my butt down onto that interpretation and feel like I'm all comfy in a chair, mm, this thought in the back of my head niggles me. Oh, I think the poet got carried away. And I think the poet lost his focus a little bit and it doesn't make any sense. And the whole question of corporeality is thrown out the window in favor of this dramatic scene and everything we worked hard to build toward the corporeality of the pilgrim, the incorporeality of others. Oh, it's just all come apart right here because the poet is getting carried away. While I want the poet to be the knowing purveyor of a literary irony that is basically shock and awe. At the same time, I'm not sure. That's a lot to hang on this passage, but this passage is skipped over in the commentary. If you look in the commentary, other than naming Lano and Giacomo and who these are and the Spinthrift Brigade and the history of that. And, oh, you get a lot of commentators talking about how are these different as I did from the from the prodigal up with the avaricious in Circle 5. That's the typical commentary stuff. And usually this passage is blown past. If you have an annotated copy of Dante's comedy, you'll find there are very few notes on this passage other than, you know, naming people and that kind of thing. But I always think this passage deserves a lot more work because I think it's problematic in every direction. And you can either say it's intentionally problematic or it's an unintentionally problematic passage. And of course, I want to say it's intentional. And yet, <laughs> it seems almost too much intentionality. Can, I, can there be too much intentionality in the greatest work of Western lit? I don't know. It just, wow. If, if the poet is playing these games, then I have one more thing to say. There is something about Inferno that allows Dante the Poet to play these kind of games. We've seen them before, the case for and against Francesca. We've seen this kind of playing fast and loose with theology, with heresy, the suicides don't even get re-embodied in the resurrection. We've seen all kinds of strange moments in which Virgil gives a sermon on the goddess fortune out of Boethius, but Virgil wouldn't know Boethius. There is honestly much more to come. Virgil is about to come in for some very hard times. He's already had some hard times in front of the walls of Dis. Wow, he's about to come into much harder times. He's about to come into moments in which he has to correct his own text, his own precious Aeneid. He has to correct. Oh, the poet is playing fast and loose in Inferno. There is something about the infernal landscape that permits this. The poet will not play this fast and loose in Purgatorio and certainly 
not this fast and loose in Paradiso. So maybe the intentionality is allowed because of the infernal landscape. Maybe the savage irony directed at me, how much will I swallow as a reader? Maybe the savage irony directed at Virgil, maybe the kind of caustic irony offered toward Ovid later on, and even a bit in Canto 13. Maybe all of this is permitted by Inferno in ways that, well, once we hit Purgatorio, and particularly when we hit Paradiso, are just not, it's just not permitted anymore. Those are much more secure and theologically certain spaces, although Dante will have his problems. And we'll bring up things that we talk about endlessly, such as the big question of heaven is, why isn't so-and-so there? And how in the world did this person get there? But that's all to come. Right now, I just want to say that there may be a way that we can say this is intentionally ironic and wildly so. The poet is seeing how far he can push us and seeing if we're paying attention and seeing if, in fact, we do believe what we read. Oh, man, Canto 13. We could be here forever. You know what? If I ever went back to grad school, I want to write my dissertation on Canto 13 of Inferno. Can you tell? It is just unbelievable and it's not done. There's one more passage in Inferno 13. Come back next time. Join in the fun. This is crazy fun to be able to do this with Dante. I love it. I hope you love it. Subscribe, rate it, connect with me on social media in all kinds of places, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Go to my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Connect with me there. You can email me. I'd love to connect with you because, wow, Dante... I mean, seriously, it is worth this kind of effort. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.